the other's gang two sisters both curious and strange i like they duo and they witty from the brain it's the magic hour mercedes and jay greetings boys and babes it's the magic hour a place where we navigate through life's peaks and valleys with all the vulnerability and shamelessness we can muster with the help of world-class guests from all walks of life we uncover new truths and valuable tools for manifesting our highest potential I'm your host, Mercedes Terrell, along with my partner in shine, Jade Bryce. Hi, you guys. Today we are having someone on that was one of our very first guests, and we loved him so much that we have had had him on every year since. The work that he does has been nothing short of transformative in our lives. Since I first met him, I was drawn to how his presence alone is healing medicine. He has a way of making people feel seen, heard, and held, and that's what people are looking for. That's healing. After sharing with him some of my darkest and most vulnerable truths, I can still say the same while adding that he has a way of also helping remove the shame in the most graceful and empathetic way. When I was being called to heal some deep trauma from my early years of life, my soul said his name. And after sitting with him while processing that trauma, it is so obvious why my soul said his name. He is so incredible at trauma work and his understanding of the psyche is mind-blowing. I will truly never be the same after that session But outside of that, his posts, podcasts, and weekly blogs add so much growth and magic to my life. And by just knowing that this king exists, it inspires me and makes me feel more able to step fully into my queen. Yes, there's a reason why we call him our podcast husband, guys. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of one other episodes, literally. Um, By the way, I don't think I've ever known a man who more women come to me about saying that they, that he's their brain crush, I guess, we're put that in quotes, <laughs> then today's guest, you can hear laughing in the background already. He knows all this. Um, so guys, if you're listening to this, please take notes today on what women are actually looking for, which is a man who has done his shadow work, integrated his demons and embodied his inner King. I have been on his podcast a couple times. Jade's been on his podcast a couple times. And I think in both of our cases, we both felt more held and nurtured than in any conversation we've had elsewhere. I know I can say mm-hmm. that for myself at least. So if you can't already tell, I truly believe in the work this guy's doing and the teaching he is relating. It is such a gift to sit at his feet. This guy's magic is profound and palpable. Jade, what more can I say? Let's get on. <laughs> I like that you said brain crush. And while I have been called a sapiosexual by many people, it is a person's transparent truth that is flowing from a heart-centered soul that I think is overwhelmingly attractive. So those people may think that they have a brain crush and are a sapiosexual, but I like to call it cardiosexual. Cardiosexual. So, <laughs> a workout. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, yeah, workout. But yes, <laughs> let's get them on the show. Our guest today is a podcaster, Jungian enthusiast, enthusiast, storyteller, myth weaver, dream interpreter extraordinaire, student of plant medicine, healer, and medicine man himself, longtime supporter of our show and one of our greatest teachers. Using cognitive, evolutionary, and Jungian psychology, he helps people discover, articulate, and change the stories that rule their lives. He is a way shower and trailblazer in what it means to be human, and we genuinely believe that this guy is doing work that will be a part of history forever and is changing the landscape of psychotherapy. He reminds us that it's our work to do what we can to remember the soul, to remember the love that's at the heart of how and why we heal. Please help me welcome our favorite magician and love warrior king to the magic hour. Yeah. Wow. No pressure. Let's see if I can live up to that. <laughs> wow. Thank you too so much. Oh, we're so grateful for you being here. So we have a ton to dive into you, dive in with, um, how we want to say that? Dive in with you. Anyway, <laughs> all the things. And we've got scuba gear on. Yeah, we've got our scuba gear on. Something that you have been really going deep on, especially this year, it seems, with all the book recos that I've been seeing flying through the the, uh, social medias, um, is studying trauma and mental health. Uh, You've always been, you know, a psychonaut and into psychology of all the types. But 
what is it specifically that initially called you to do this deep dive into trauma and, and mental health um, studies? Yeah, so uh, this past year, Aubrey um, asked me to be the research writer for his book, and his book is all about mental health. And it was an interesting full circle because after I graduated, I got a degree in cognitive psychology, a bachelor's, and I spent like two years debating about whether or not I wanted to go get a PhD in clinical psychology. And then I read a book called Sapiens that essentially laid out that to go get a PhD, you essentially become beholden to getting research grants from either the government or from large companies. And once I realized that I would be kind of, you know, a servant to where I could get the money, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go learn how to run a company, create a company that provides me my own revenue. And so I could do my own research. And once I started working with Aubrey at Onnit, um, once he started to write the book, he asked me to be the research writer. And once I started doing that research, I realized, oh, this is me getting to write my PhD dissertation. Mm. But instead of paying a university $100,000 to get to write it, I'm actually being paid to write it. And mm-hmm. so it was like this really amazing opportunity. And the first chapter was supposed to be on depression. And so, and depression has been one of the things that I've been the most interested in studying. But this was the first time that I actually went and researched it like a researcher. And I very quickly found some pretty shocking um, facts, which is the chemical imbalance theory of depression is a lie. There is, um, and I could get into it, but I know that we have a lot of questions. But once I found that, and then I started looking at the evidence of the effectiveness of placebo drugs when compared to antidepressant drugs. I went down this rabbit hole, looked into some researchers, and this whole landscape blossomed of the documented historical corruption by pharmaceutical companies of the American Psychiatric Association and of our government to sell us this story that was not backed by science. And There's a book called The Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker that has over 800 citations that just lays it all out in a way that completely transformed uh, my understanding of our current attempt to heal mental illness, primarily through pharmacology and how it's not working. And that was a huge thing that happened for me probably around April and... um, I know that it's something that I will be talking about for the rest of my life. And why it's so important is it is the current attempt that our culture is doing to heal mental illness and it's not working. And then one of the chapters that I started to work on was about addiction. And once I started going down the rabbit hole of addiction, it became very clear that the people who are experts on this all agree that the root of addiction is trauma. And I'd never done any formal research on trauma. So I basically bought all the best books that I could find. Most of them were by Peter Levine. Mm -hmm. And I started going deep on trauma. And what I realized was trauma seems to be one of the core actual roots of the mental health epidemic in our culture. Because the pharmacological model, it says that the reason like that the source of mental illness is essentially a chemical imbalance. It's your genes. Um, it's, it's more nuanced than that, but the way it's sold to the average person in the public, if you asked 100 people what causes depression, 99 people are going to say a chemical imbalance, and you might find one person who might say something like God or something. Um, and then once I started to really get into trauma, the thing that really blossomed for me was all of the research in the different areas of my life for the last 10 years that I've been most attracted to, all of it was a part of understanding trauma. Mm -hmm. And um, I just felt super called to write what is now the longest thing that I've ever written, um, a blog post called What is Trauma? And I worked on it for like two and a half months and then I turned it into a podcast. And it is the thing that I've done that has gotten the most feedback of anything that I've done so far. And it revolutionized my understanding of the psyche. So like my big dream is to essentially create a new type of healing system that is more effective than all of the conventional models that we have for healing mental disorders. And 
I thought that the way that you did that before I did the research on trauma was all about people's stories mm -hmm. and like the helping myth. people change. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why my podcast is called The Myths That Make Us and I'm obsessed with stories. And I thought it could all be done in the mind. But what I learned about trauma is that we essentially have two parts of us. There's the storyteller, but then there's the animal. And if the animal is traumatized, it almost imprisons the storyteller to tell fearful, constrictive stories. And no matter how much work you do on someone's storytelling, if their animal is still in a state of fight or flight all the time, it's going to be probably impossible, but at best, extremely difficult to heal people's stories. And so doing the research on trauma has actually, it showed me that I was wrong. For the last 10 years, I've been wrong. And that it starts with helping the animal heal. And then once the animal can get to a place of peace, it's much easier to help people upgrade their stories. Yeah. Uh, I know we're going to get into what healing looks like and how, how we do that during this, this podcast. But in your uh, blog, you talk about the, the polar bear and you talk about the, is it a gazelle? Mm -hmm. um, or Impala. Or Impala, yeah. These animals that we can literally see on YouTube, you know, shaking out the trauma. What is that response mechanism? Like what's happening there? Because you're talking about like the somatic right. healing work, right? How do we, what does that look like? I guess is yeah. what I want to know first. So those videos I think are some of the most important videos that anyone who has the symptoms of trauma could possibly watch because it shows you how animals intuitively know how to process trauma. And one of the things that's really important to understand about trauma is that we have a body that has evolved over millions of years to react to specific stimuluses in the environment in a adaptive way that has been honed by evolution and that those instincts you don't have conscious control of and we'll get into it but one of the reasons why humans become traumatized is their storytelling about how they responded in the traumatic situation and they think that it makes them weak or that they somehow are like that there's shame or guilt around how they've responded. And one of the things that's really important for people to understand is these instincts are not your fault if you've acted this way. But so to kind of set the stage, in our evolutionary history, we were both prey animals and predator animals. And we have a set of instincts for dealing with danger that both predators and prey animals have. And the first way that we've evolved to react to danger is the fight or flight response. And everyone's familiar with the fight or flight response. And you either think that you can run and escape it, or you think that you can fight it. But prey animals have an extra instinct, and it's the freeze response. And it's the freeze response that tends to be the reaction that most people will have in the face of trauma that then leads to them having traumatic symptoms. And the video of the Impala is super important to watch for people who think that they have trauma because what happens is a lion catches the impala and has it by the neck and the freeze response is the last ditch effort of the organism to attempt to survive when there's no other option and so this powerful instinct seizes the body and paralyzes the animal and the animal looks dead and there are evolutionary adaptive reasons why this would happen and some of them would be predators require movement in order for their attack and eat response to be triggered. And so if you're paralyzed, if you appear dead, you don't trigger that instinct in the predator. The other one is if predators aren't super hungry, they won't eat dead meat because dead meat from an evolutionary standpoint will tend to be bad meat or like sick meat. And so if they, if they freeze themselves, they're less likely to be eaten. But the most important one is the freeze response numbs the prey animal. It reduces the pain that it experiences if it's fucking being eaten alive. And one of the symptoms of that freeze response is disassociation. And that's one of the major symptoms of people who have incurred trauma is they will disassociate from their body or they'll disassociate from their memories. And that's why you can have repressed memories. But 
What animals do intuitively, what the impala does intuitively is that if the predator either gets chased off by somebody else or just loses its focus and like, like wanders away, the impala will bolt up and run to safety. And as soon as it's safe, it will start to seize. And the seizuring is the muscles like excreting out the instinctual impulse to become, to look like they have rigor mortis. And humans, because of our storytelling ability and our ability to repress what we feel, most people who go through a traumatic experience don't do that last part. And that last part is what tells the organism you're no longer in danger. And so if you don't do that, a part of your animal body will live every day as if the predator is still in your environment. And so you have this chronic stress response that destroys your sleep. Your sleep is where you do most of your rebuilding of your body. And over the course of weeks and months and years, if that's never processed clearly or fully, it destroys your health. And there's this whole symptom or a whole spread of symptoms that two Western doctors who haven't studied trauma, it seems like eight or 10 different things are wrong with you. And they'll give you four to five different medications to deal with all these things. But if you process the, the trauma held in the body, what researchers like Peter Levine have found is all of these symptoms go away because they're all the result of a chronic stress response that is destroying the immune system over the course of months or years. Yeah. So when we're looking at, uh, sorry, Jay, go ahead. Sorry. I just wanted to say something real quick about the freeze response. I know that um, with my sexual trauma, uh, the mother of the, the person who did the sexual trauma or did the sexual act to me, her first response was, well, why, why didn't she walk away? Why didn't exactly. she stop him? And I was only like 12, 13 when I was asked that. So I remember up until just here recently when I read Mary Magdalene Revealed and then when I did work with Eric, feeling shame for my freeze response. I right. felt um, like I didn't fight back. And now I feel thankful for my freeze response. I feel thankful to my body for using that survival tactic because that was how it fought back. And that was how I survived. So now I that shame is now gratitude. So I just, if anyone's listening and that freeze response felt familiar to them, I wanted to offer that perspective. Yeah, I think this is one of the most important aspects for people who have gone through traumatic experiences is if you understand that this is an instinct that has been programmed into you by the intelligence of evolution because it's been honed in the environments that we've evolved from for millions of years, you didn't do anything wrong. A force that is akin to a god, which I would say are what instincts are, gripped you and did the best it could, and you are not at fault. And one of the things that traps trauma in the body is this felt sense of shame. And so helping people let go of their shame is one of the most important parts of why I feel so inspired to teach this. Yeah, I think that leads us to the idea of PTSD and what is happening um, in our psyche when that's coming up, what's happening in our body when that's coming up for us or is trying to and play what out. exactly is PTSD? Because a lot of people hear PTSD, not so much now, but a lot of people hear PTSD, PTSD and think of war veterans. Right. So... Right. So uh, in doing the research on trauma, um, what I have found is, so PTSD is a specific type of trauma, and it's what's technically called shock trauma. And shock trauma can, it's like the most common ways that it happens are war, sexual assault, and surgery. And this is something that most people don't know, but one of the most common ways people accrue PTSD is actually to go and get surgery. And what causes PTSD, which is called shock trauma, is essentially either the fight or flight response is biologically or physically inhibited. So like if you're held down or if you're drugged, and then, um, or if you chose the freeze response, but you didn't ever clear the energy out completely. And this is shock trauma. 
But there's also a thing called developmental trauma. And this is something that has not been, or maybe within the last year has started to become officially recognized as an actual type of trauma. But all the experts on trauma agree this is absolutely a different type of trauma. And developmental trauma is essentially, um, there's a couple of ways to come at it, but I think the best way to understand it is at any point in your developmental life, and it is, it will almost always be in the presence of caretakers. If you felt any genuine call to express and you didn't, either because you were shamed or you were taught that you weren't supposed to, or you were physically stopped, you start to accrue almost like emotional gunk in your body. So for men, Anytime that you felt the urge to cry growing up, if you were taught that it wasn't acceptable to cry, every time that you felt the urge, you start to, you can almost imagine like there's a well in your body of how much stress your body can hold before it starts to cause damage. And every time that you had the urge to cry and you didn't, some water gets added to that well. And for women, the most common one when I talk to therapists that work in this field is Anytime that you felt the urge to express anger or to maintain boundaries and you don't, there's this slow accretion of water in this well. And we all on some level have developmental trauma. Like I haven't met anyone who is fully uninhibited in their expression right. of their genuine emotions. I've met people that say they aren't. <laughs> right. Okay. And then in doing the research, um, in conjunction with everything that I've done for the last 10 years, I propose that there's a third type, and I would call it like storyteller trauma. And it's where something happens in your life where the truth of it is so disruptive to the story of who you believe you are that your entire story of who you are breaks. And the most common example is if you're married for 10 years and you come home one day and your spouse has left you and they left a note saying that they've been cheating on you with somebody else for six years and that they're divorcing you, that piece of truth, it doesn't cause shock trauma and it's not the result of developmental trauma, but it destroys people. And the result of it will often either be depression or mania or psychosis if they can't integrate the truth into restructuring who they believe that they are. And so I think that that's a third type, but there's no, you know, there's no one that I know who is making the claim for that being a type of trauma, but I think that's one of the roots of depression. Um, but to get back to the original question, PTSD is shock trauma. And that's when one of those primary instincts, fight, flight, or freeze is inhibited. And you're not able to discharge or complete the act. And that causes PTSD. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And so, I mean, I guess that's kind of categorizing PTSD as something that most people are dealing with to some regard or another, um, or to some level or another. Is that what you notice? So PTSD seems to be less common than developmental trauma. Uh, PTSD, most people know if they've incurred PTSD because they're there was some significant event like a car accident or a rape or you went to war and and there was some really powerful experience that happened where you weren't able to complete the act and we can get into like how the symptoms play out but what's super interesting is one of the things that's really important to understand about trauma is that no wild animals hold on to trauma it's only humans and domesticated animals. And there's some specific examples about why that happens. But what that shows is that to incur trauma is natural for an or for a organism that is complex in its structure enough to be a social animal. And that it's also natural to heal it. There is a innate healing intelligence inside of us that if we don't get in the way of, knows exactly what to do to heal this. And the video of the polar bear is the perfect fucking example. So to give people that story, there's a video in the blog article that I wrote that Peter Levine uses as a teaching tool. And he's regarded as one of the greatest experts on healing trauma that is alive right now. 
And these biologists are in a helicopter and they're, they have to dart this polar bear to tag it for some science. And they're in a helicopter and the polar bear is running. And they eventually hit it with a dart that tranquilizes it. And then they tag it and they do everything that they need to do. And as the polar bear is coming out of the tranquilization, the first thing that happens is it starts taking these huge deep breaths while it's still unconscious. And as it takes these huge deep breaths, after a couple of these breaths, it starts convulsing. It looks like it's having a seizure. And the biologist is explaining, this is completely normal. This is actually a part of him healing what just happened to him. And Peter Levine breaks this down. And this is one of the really interesting insights. It's not random convulses. They're actually micro movements of what the polar bear needed to do in the moment when it was tranquilized in order to escape. And so it's small twitches of its paws and its legs to represent the running. And so like what people will experience as they start, if they get to a place where their body feels safe enough to process trauma is whatever the shaking is, it tends to be the symbolic acts that the animal needed to do in the moment of trauma. One of the stories that Peter Levine talks about, and this is such a crazy story, but you know, he studied trauma for like 30 years. And then when he was an older man, um, he was riding his bike one day and he got hit by a car. And all of the knowledge that he has accrued about how to heal trauma was like watching his meat suit go through what happened. So he gets hit by a car. He's lying in the middle of the road. He can't move. He's in shock. <clears throat> and people start to crowd around. And this man comes up to him. And, and the man is really abrasive. He thinks he's trying to help, but he's just super abrasive. And Peter Levine can feel like, the force of this man is actually making him not feel safe and he starts to get angry and agitated, but he's not able to move because he's still in shock. And eventually a woman comes up and kind of quiet down the man and puts her hand on Levine and just kind of like holds space and doesn't try to do anything, but just kind of emanates this like, I am with your suffering. I see you. The ambulance is coming and isn't trying to do anything. And that, and Peter Levine could feel that that was healing. Mm. The ambulance event eventually comes and like it's, 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 it's tragic to feel into, but what the ambulance or what the first responders do is they strap him down to a bed and they put him in the ambulance and Peter Levine can see, oh, this is going to trap the trauma in my body. And so he actually starts to talk to the first responders and explains who he is and what his research is and convinces them to, to unstrap him. And then he starts to do like this body check-in where he basically gives his body permission to do whatever it wants. And his right shoulder starts to twitch and his arm starts to, do, to like come up towards his face and his body is symbolically doing what it should have done to protect himself from the car, but that he didn't have time to do. And he was able to let his body complete the symbolic act of protecting itself. And then by the time he got to the hospital, he could feel that he had let the trauma go and he didn't incur traumatic symptoms. But this is an example of like the way our medical system is set up because they don't understand trauma. It actually can trap trauma in the body. And then people later will have to do the work to get into a safe space where they allow their body to essentially seize. Hmm. So you're saying that, that animals don't have this, the same effect necessarily. They don't, they don't store trauma in the body the same way if they're able to shake it out or whatever they need to do in order to move it through their body. Right. Animals don't, wild animals don't become traumatized, but they experience trauma and then they release it. So what about like, like I have a cat that was feral when, you know, I got him and he definitely is a lot different than my other cat that's very social and all that. And he's constantly kind of twitchy and hypersensitive and seems like he's traumatized if you, you know, yeah. look at it from a human sense. Um, and he, you know, if he hears any voices coming towards the house, he doesn't know he's can't, you'll never find him for like a day. You know what I mean? So there's some sort of now is that like a because he was a feral cat is that maybe a genetically stored trauma in a sense or what do you so 
When I bring this up, uh, I've, I've gotten questions like this from people who have dogs or have cats that they feel are traumatized. And the way that I understand it is they technically do not have PTSD in the sense that they have a chronic stress response that when they feel safe, they act like that when they are not in the presence of a trigger, that they're just at baseline, that they're not at a heightened state of stress in the same way that a human can be in a room where there is no trigger of a threat, but if they're traumatized, they will still feel like they are stressed out. Mm -hmm. But what animals that have been through traumatic experience will do is they learn. And so in the presence of a trigger, like a car horn or people talking, Mm -hmm. they have a set of reflexes that are more extreme than a domesticated cat that's protective But once they get wherever they need to get where they feel safe, they return completely to baseline. Mm. There's a book by Robert Sapolsky, and he's a famous biologist, and it's called Zebra or Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Mm. And the whole idea is that they don't hold a chronic stress response when they are not in the immediate environment of a trigger. And so your feral cat has a more intense set of reflexes in the presence of triggers that remind it of threats that it's been exposed to in the past. But when it go find when it goes and finds its safe place in some corner of un, under a bed in one mm-hmm. of your rooms, it goes back to baseline and it's not in a chronic stress response. Got it. So I think we touched on this a bit, but the four symptoms of response or, or responses to trauma. Um, maybe you can just delineate those again and see if we take off on right. any of those again. So the symptoms of trauma is one of the most interesting parts of all this because it, it shows us, at least to me, how we are holistic beings and the mind and the body are not as separate as we believe that they are. But the four primary symptoms of trauma, and Peter Levine calls these the core four, they are perfectly adaptive in the immediate moment of the threat. But if they continue in the absence of the threat, you will begin to get a whole host of symptoms that will get progressively worse as time goes on because your chronic stress response will continue to degrade your physical health. But the core four, the first one is hypervigilance. And hypervigilance is essentially what we've evolved to be like when we perceive threat in our environment. And the hallmark of this are the wide eyes. Mm. Like lots of women that I know who um, like one of the ways that you can feel into whether or not someone has unprocessed trauma is if their eyes always look like they're on edge or they're surprised because Mm. their nervous system is priming their body to detect threat. And so hypervigilance is essentially the body mobilizing its tools to anticipate a threat. The second one is constriction. You have biological and psychological constriction in the presence of a threat. And so your eyes will dilate, your breathing will constrict, your blood vessels will actually constrict, your muscles will constrict, and a lot of people will have chronic muscular pain as one of the symptoms of trauma because there's this chronic constriction Mm -hmm. because you're anticipating having to run or fight. And so there's this constriction. Um, The third one is disassociation. And this is one of the most complex and interesting ones, but... um, you will disassociate from the from being fully connected to your body because you're anticipating pain and there's this part of you that thinks that it's actually protecting you from pain but chronic disassociation can lead to uh, repressed memories it can lead to blackouts it can lead to you not being connected to your body so you're prone to injuries Uh, there might be aspects of your body that feel completely unconscious to you And um, if that goes on for a long time, it can cause a lot of issues. And the fourth one is a felt sense of helplessness. And this is probably the most detrimental one. But many people who have gone through trauma, their felt sense of agency in the world, the belief that their actions can actually improve their life is destroyed. And 
agency is a, is one of the fundamental psychological traits that one needs to be resilient to stress and to also thrive. And so one of the really important things in healing trauma is to help people reclaim agency. And there's a couple of stories that I can share when we start to talk about how you heal trauma that will um, represent that clearly. But those are the core four. And if those continue beyond the immediate exposure to threat, Mm -hmm. uh, they lead to a chronic elevated stress response that leads to a chronic elevation of inflammation which tends to be the bedrock of what causes a lot of the chronic mental and biological diseases, quote unquote, that mm -hmm. we see in Western culture. Yeah, fascinating stuff. It brings up for me um, a question about, I don't even know if it's a question, but the hypervigilance piece for me, I think, and maybe tell me if I'm mistaken here, but I get like super hearing sense. <laughs> And um, I think that comes from my childhood where I would literally listen at my door to see when my stepmom would not be in the kitchen so that I could like go out there and get food or cross over to get to my car or whatever I was doing that, I, you know, I was trying to avoid um, com confrontation with her. And that hypervigilance, I think, in an interesting way, translated into a fetish for me, which I think most fetishes well, all fetishes, I think, come from needing to heal things in our psyche. Um, so for me, it turned into this, like, being hypersensitive to my the voice of my lover. So, like, l hearing my lover's voice or um, hearing him talk or even just breathing or any of those sound sounds that you could hear, uh, especially in a really intimate setting – are like a fetish for me. You know what I mean? I think that's a really yeah. normal fetish for a lot of people, but um, I have other non-normal fetishes. Okay, guys? <laughs> I'm, I'm just a freak. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but so that for me is interesting. And I just thought maybe you have some words for how we sometimes yeah. translate trauma or something that com comes up, you know, in our young childhood into fetish and then how we, because we're going yeah. to go into this healing work. I think next is our right. question is going to go that way. So maybe that can help us enter in there. Yeah. yeah. So that's a great insight. And there's a few things that come up when I hear it. Uh, the first thing is it's actually more common to experience what's called post-traumatic growth than to have post-traumatic stress disorder. Hmm. It's something like 80% of people who go through a traumatic situation, um, once they've done the work, will report it as one of the most like useful things that have happened to them because it helped them create mm. or become some new thing. And uh, most people who go through trauma, they actually incur superpowers if they can liberate themselves from the trauma of whatever the adaptive actions were that they had to learn in the response to the traumatic experience when they were younger. Like um, a lot of people who would call themselves empaths, very likely, and there have been psychological studies on this that have shown this to be true, that if you had a parent who was emotionally volatile as a child to protect yourself, you had to learn how to anticipate their emotional state before they even spoke. Mm. And probably all three of us here have this deeper sense of intuition into other people's emotional states because we had an emotional volatile parent. And while that is traumatic on one level, it also causes us to adapt in a way that makes us more capable growing up. So that's one thing to articulate is that trauma can actually be the, the quote that I really like is our traumas are the, are the wounds that become the wounds that birth our medicine. And that's kind of a poetic way to look at like, yeah. if you do the work, the trauma that you incurred actually produces superpowers. So that, that's one thing. Another is, I don't know if I'm ready to claim that I believe that all fetishes are the result of trauma, but the people that I've studied and a lot of really smart people, they actually do believe that that, that that is the case. And the really interesting thing about a fetish is that it allows you to claim agency. Mm. It, it allows you to consciously enter into reenacting 
the traumatic experience in a way where you get control over it. And that is actually one of the ways that you heal trauma. And so a part of what this has unfolded in me is like what BDSM and what like that entire community allows is it creates a really clear container Mm. where you talk about what you are comfortable with before. There's a clear delineation between talking about it and then entering into the scene. And it gives you the opportunity, if you want to, to to go back into the traumatic experience that happened in the past, but you now have a safe word and you also get to choose how it unfolds. And there can be a lot of trauma healing that can happen within that container. Um, I don't think that our medical model or our society is advanced Mm -hmm. enough to let that ever be in the next 100 years, a healing modality that's actually done because the amount of training that it would take for the, therapist to hold that container is beyond what we seem to be able to create in people, but people can play it out in their personal romantic lives. And it actually is a very powerful way to do healing. Yeah. Uh, we actually go deeper into that with river warring. Yeah. River was, warring. I have a, a hard time with that. River roaring. It is. a <laughs> It's really tough to say. Uh, it sounds like a porn name. It, it's not a real name, you know, but um, <laughs> she's, she's a, she's a sexual, sexual surrogate. Yeah, she's a sexual surrogate that actually works as a therapist to help people venture through really their, cool. their fetishes. Yeah, our episode with her, uh, we go pretty deep into that. So, yeah, yeah intended, I guess. Right. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about the tools to heal the trauma. And maybe you can share with us some of the things that you've seen while you sat for others while they healed some trauma. And I'm completely comfortable with you talking about our experience of what you observed as I process my trauma, if that's helpful, um, because there's nothing I wouldn't share with our audience, especially if it would aid in their own healing. So um, yeah, let's get into that. Yeah. So um, because there's three different types of trauma, what I'm going to focus on is the one where the most research has been done that allows for the healing. And that's PTSD. That's shock trauma. And But what helps people heal shock trauma will very likely help people also integrate storytelling trauma and then developmental trauma. But developmental trauma is notoriously harder to heal because the trauma likely happened with caretakers. And that creates a whole warping of how you relate to people, how you trust people. And that's fundamentally harder Mm -hmm. to heal. But we can get into that. But I'll start with shock trauma. So shock trauma is essentially healed through cultivating awareness, reclaiming agency, and then, you know, potentially if you feel ready to share your story. And so what that looks like is Peter Levine has made famous this term called the felt sense. And the felt sense is to teach people how to non-judgmentally feel what is in their body. Mm-hmm. What's really interesting is if you ask someone how they feel, Like we did it at the very beginning of this podcast. People intuitively say a judgment as opposed to articulating what they are actually feeling. Mm -hmm. And so if you say you feel good or bad, that's not the felt sense. That's the mind judging a configuration of body sensations. And most people don't even have access to the raw body sensations that's happening in their body. Like if someone says that they're angry, angry is a label for a body sensation. And anger might manifest differently in all three of us. Like anger might be heat in the head or a constriction in the chest or a constriction in the throat or like a throbbing in your gut. And how anger feels to you is actually a portal into whether or not you might have stored trauma there. And so Peter Levine has a whole bunch of techniques that you can go find in his very short book called Healing Trauma to teach people how to cultivate the felt sense. But the practice that he offers that I find is the, is the easiest bridge for people is he has a meditative practice where you take a shower. That's my magic trick today. Let's go. (laughs) Go ahead. (laughs) Where you turn it slightly above warm and then you direct the stream onto each part of your body and you can start at your feet And you just feel the pulsing of the hot water on your right foot. And you say, this is my right foot. I welcome you home. Mm -hmm. And you feel what it feels like to have sensations in your right foot. And then you move up to your shin and then your knee 
and then your thigh and your left foot and et cetera, et cetera. And you, almost all of us have some, have some trauma stored in us mm-hmm. and you will get to a part of your body that you can't feel and you just keep it there. Like it might mm-hmm. be your pelvis. It might be your right butt cheek. It might be your right shoulder. Like I got surgery on my right shoulder and there's inhibited sensation there. Mm-hmm. And you, st- and you can do this also through meditation, like any type of meditation that helps you bring awareness to each part of your body and invites you to like allow it to relax more and more. That starts to cultivate this feeling of the felt sense. And then what will happen is if you feel something somewhere and what somatic experiencing therapists do, and this is the type of therapy that Peter Levine created, they're super good at reading someone's body. And they can see where there's some type of like lockness happening. And then they will ask the person to do some, what might seem like a random movement. Like one of the most common ones they do is a lot of us will clench our jaw when we, when we are repressing wanting to feel something. So one of the things that a lot of um, uh, somatic experiencers will do is they'll tell the patient, slowly open and close your jaw and say, ah. And so you just go, Uh, and if you're in that space where they feel safe, that will make people start to cry Mm. almost always because it, it tricks the biology where you can't constrict your jaw anymore. And if you can't constrict your jaw, it reduces your ability to repress the emotion and then something will start to come up. And then what he teaches with the felt sense is, can you non-judgmentally just hold your awareness on whatever is happening in your body? And then once you do that, can you ask it, what do you want to tell me? Or what are you here to teach me? Or what do you want to do next? And then when you're in the presence of a really experienced worker here, and I'm an amateur at this, but like it's something that I want to cultivate my understanding in, is that an experience will happen in the body that will eventually lead to some type of tremoring, mm-hmm. some type of somatic release that afterwards will actually give you a, a deeper felt sense of integration in your body. And sometimes, but not all of the time, um, memories will start to come back as this part of the body starts to come alive. And what's interesting is that the memories that can come up in this experience are not always what actually happened. This is one of the biggest misunderstandings about trauma and repressed memories. And Peter Levine has a whole book called Trauma and Memory where he really tries to drive this home. You will sometimes have visions that are actually symbolic representations akin to dreams or visions on plant medicine that represents the energy that is being healed and is not an actual memory of what happened. And as the memory comes up, it's, it's the body almost trying to symbolically give you an opportunity to act in the vision that's coming up in a symbolic way that can heal you. And I'll give a story to really cement this. Peter Levine has this famous story where he was doing this research on trauma and he had someone come into his office who had had panic attacks for like 20 years. And she had gone to dozens of doctors, have taken all sorts of meds, but they couldn't get rid of these panic attacks. And the panic attacks were so bad that she couldn't leave the house. So when she came into Peter's office, he put her through some relaxation techniques to like help her let her guard down. And what he saw was her heart rate dropped almost to the point of her like passing out. And he was getting really worried. And behind him, because he had been studying animals in order to understand trauma, he had a vision of there was a stalking tiger in the room. And he just intuitively yelled at her, a tiger is in the room. You need to run. And she screamed and her legs started to tremor. And she started like, her, her legs were doing the symbolic action of running. And she's screaming. And it was such a loud commotion that a police officer was outside in the office and came into the room and was like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> and Peter Levine's assistant was able to kind of explain to the cop what was happening. This was like 20 years ago. So the fact that his assistant was able to explain what the fuck was going on to not interrupt it is a miracle. Yeah. But 
he started to coach her through this running. And then he was like, there's a tree, run up in the tree and get away from the tiger. Mm. And she crawled up this tree and her arm started to seize. And then she reclaimed a memory. And she remembered that when she was four or six, she got a tonsillectomy. And she could remember that she was terrified as she was being given the ether. And she wanted to run, but she couldn't complete the action because she got sedated. Mm -hmm. And so that running, that needing to run had been trapped in her body. And so she was hyper vigilant. And so all sorts of things would trigger this need to run, but she didn't understand what she needed to do. And after that first meeting with Levine, uh, she basically screamed and shook for an hour. She never had a panic attack again. Wow. She came back for a couple more sessions. He put her through a couple of more experiences where she had more tremoring to the point where she was able to go get a PhD and she was able to get off most of the meds that she was on. Wow. And that's an example of she reclaimed agency through a vision. She never in her life was actually chased by a tiger, but the vision of the tiger allowed her to symbolically act out what needed to be done in the presence of the actual trauma that healed her. And one of the things that is most misunderstood is people will think that anything that arises in their psyche is an actual memory. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not. And Peter Levine's big takeaway here is it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. If you can't know for sure whether or not it happened, it's not important about whether or not it's real. It's what is the symbolic or physical act that needs to be done that the vision is trying to prompt you to do that will help you reclaim agency. And so the first part is cultivating awareness. And that is fundamentally learning how to do this felt sense technique. And then number two is to reclaim agency. And reclaiming agency is you either symbolically or physically act out what needed to be done in that moment. And that is almost always intuitively taken care of by how the tremoring happens. And then the third one is, can you articulate the story to yourself in a way where you can integrate gratitude and meaning from it? Like Jade mentioned that at the beginning of the podcast, that she was able to cultivate gratitude for how she had acted. And the ultimate last stage of this healing is if you feel comfortable, can you share it with people that you care about? Because there's a bunch of research that shows if something has happened to you and you don't share it, that it feels like a secret and that the reason it's a secret is because you either feel ashamed or guilty or afraid to share it. That actually creates a chronic stress response. A part of your psyche is always trying to protect that thing and it eats up energy. And that if you share it, even if you articulate it only to yourself, you actually heal that chronic stress trigger. There's a researcher named James Pennebaker who has overseen over 300 studies on a type of journaling that's called expressive writing. And these are people that heal trauma by articulating the story to themselves. They don't even have to share it with other people. But if you can articulate how the story fits into the story of your life in a way that gives you a felt sense of agency or gratitude, it heals that too. So I'm curious, I know I asked you this yesterday, but I feel like a lot of parents listening, when you talked about her being six and having a surgery, um, are wondering what they can do for their children that may have um, this type of trap trauma in their bodies. Like I mentioned yesterday, um, my son being circumcised, they literally strap boys down, you know, little boys down at only a day or two old and cut the most sensitive part of their body. So we talked about Peter Levine being strapped in the thing. We've talked about the six-year-old girl. I'm curious um, what parents listening can do for their children to help maybe help process that through their bodies. Yeah. So the first thing here, and I shared this with Jade yesterday is for the parent not to shame themselves for the choice that they made there, because most people just don't know that this is truly traumatic. And it is like uh, our understanding of trauma is such that I cannot possibly imagine a situation where that wouldn't cause trauma. 
Um, and so the first thing is to forgive yourself because it's not like you were given this information before you made that choice and you did what you thought was best in that moment. Um, for your children, like one of the best things that you can do is encourage them to do any type of activity that will help them connect to their body. And so I, I'm pretty sure that your son does jujitsu, right? Mm-hmm. That is one of the greatest possible things that you oh. could let your children do is it will connect them to their body and any so like yoga jujitsu kickboxing any type of sport where they're really trained in the fundamentals Mm -hmm. um it will allow them to start to feel a sense of competence in their own body and the activity will force them to be in their own body Mm. and once they're of an old enough age where you feel like you can start to teach them the felt sense like this is something that you could do with them where you could like tap on their body and you could explain, this is an exercise to help you understand your body more. And you could say, this is my foot. This is my shin. And you just tap along their body. Mm. Um, And I think you can start there. Um, Mm -hmm. I haven't done it. You know, I don't have children yet. And I intuitively don't know at what age you could start to consciously do trauma work, but you can do a lot of healing by helping them get into activities that allow them to a connect to their body, but then also connect to a community through the shared activity. And that's why like youth sports, jujitsu and things like that are incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm also, Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say something that came up for me while we were talking about Peter Levine's method and that nothing that comes up is, irrelevant first of all and it doesn't really matter if it's a real memory or not whatever that means um (laughs) because you you really uh invited us to the work of carl jung and dream journaling dream psychology um you were where we entered that work and Mm -hmm. we spent a lot of time now on this podcast talking about dreams and dream journaling, um, with you and, and on your podcast. And then also just with other, you know, people we've had on the show and that idea of dreams being this distant, um, reference, you know, this distant analogies to what's something you need to heal in your own life or psyche makes me think of the way that, that, uh, Peter Levine's relating that idea of whatever comes up, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, you're trying to, intellectualize it into something. Well, is this real? Did this really happen to me? This event of this tiger chasing me really happened to me. That's not the focus. The focus is what is this showing me? What comes up when I go through the motions here? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that leads you to any thoughts. Yes. Spot on. So one of the reasons why the trauma research was so invigorating for me is that the healing is the same thing that is done when when you understand how to interpret dreams and just like a really interesting side note is one of the techniques that's used for helping people process trauma is called, um, Oh, it's escaping me right now, but it's where you move your eyes back and EMDR. forth. EMDR. What EMDR does is it tricks the biology to go into the same psychological mm-hmm. state that you are in when you dream mm-hmm. it's rapid eye movement. And what we're doing when we're dreaming on some sense is we are processing symbolic images that represent emotions into like our body. And on one level, that's what dreams are is there's a part of your mind that can only speak in images and it's speaking in images to represent energies in the body. And it creates this felt sense of disjointed imagery, but it's really processing how you move through different emotional states to, to essentially help heal you. And EMDR will force that in the waking state and it helps people process trauma. And like, that's just, it's so fascinating to me that what is organically done in dreams, if biologically manipulated to happen in conscious awareness, heals. Yeah. Like, it's just an insight that like dreaming is healing you. And also, and, you know, I've done some dream interpretation for both of you that you cannot hide from your dreams (laughs) and your dreams will show you if you learn how to, how to interpret them, where you have unprocessed shit. 
and it will show you like what your cycles are, how you avoid, like if you want to have the most intimate possible relationship with your partner, share your dreams with each other. Mm -hmm. You can't hide shit. Like if, if you, if you're entertaining texts from someone that you know that you're attracted to, and it's starting to create an energetic experience inside of you, it's going to come up in your motherfucking dream. You know, if you're running from an argument with your partner because you're upset with how they did X, Y, and Z, it's going to come up in your motherfucking dreams. And Mm. to me, what that is a sign of is there is this innate healing intelligence inside of us that wants us to confront wherever we are blocked and to alchemize it. Mm -hmm. And it's true in dreams and it's also true in this trauma work. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And and just because we're here in this circle and this setting with these people from you and Jade for me, you know, held this little container for me for now several years, which is pretty cool to say. Um, and Jade knows that during quarantine, I like really decided to take construction from COVID and go inward and have a therapy session every week for the like seven months straight. And then, wow. and I'm still doing it, but um, I also dream journaled every single morning, which is a lot of dreams. Um, and now it's funny. Now I, I actually analyze my dreams in my dreams, which has turned into a whole weird, it's like a whole weird thing. And then I always spend the first hour. Like I don't even have to journal. I journal them if they're, I can tell they need to be journaled now, but otherwise it's like, I just spend an hour with my eyes closed basically after I wake up and I just sort through it, you know, and I kind of get the messaging. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing that this healing is available for anyone at any time. But I wanted to offer something here. This is the end of part one. Tune in next week for part two. We'll see you there. It's the magic hour. Mercedes and Jay.